lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that we're very similar in a lot of ways. That's Craig Foster, the star of a Netflix documentary called My Octopus Teacher, reflecting on the bond that he had developed with a wild octopus in the waters off the coast of South Africa. That Oscar-winning documentary cast a spotlight on the curiosity and creativity of octopuses. Or should I say octopi? Now, a new novel called The Mountain in the Sea puts octopus intelligence at the center of a science fiction tale that's as suspenseful as any story about alien contact. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the intersection of science and fiction. Join me and my co-host, science fiction author Dominica Fetaplace, as we chat with Ray Naylor, the author of The Mountain in the Sea, and with Dominic Civitilli, a researcher at the University of Washington who studies octopus cognition. I think you're going to love the conversation. What do animal intelligence, artificial intelligence, and alien intelligence have in common, besides the fact that they all start with AI? And what are the implications for how we humans get along with the natural world, with our AI creations, and maybe even with aliens in the future? Those are a couple of deep questions, and Ray Naylor's new science fiction novel, The Mountain in the Sea, is a great story that should also get readers thinking deeply about the answers. Ray is well qualified to pose those questions. In addition to writing science fiction, he has done tours of duty in the Peace Corps and the U.S. Foreign Service, and he currently serves as the international advisor to the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. One of his previous jobs was to serve as the Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Officer at the U.S. Consulate in Ho Chi Minh City, and that background came in handy when he set the scene for his story on a mysterious Vietnamese island owned by a transnational tech corporation. When Dominica Fetaplace and I sat down with Ray for a Zoom conversation, we brought in Dominic Civitilli as a special guest. Dominic is a graduate student focusing on astrobiology and psychology at the University of Washington. His specialty is octopus cognition, with a focus on sensory motor control within the arms of an octopus. Some of the best moments in our chat came when Ray and Dominic batted around ideas about the distributed nature of octopus intelligence and the lessons that could be learned for understanding the nature of artificial intelligence as well as our own all-too-human brand of intelligence. Dominica started out the conversation by asking Ray to give his elevator pitch for the book. The book is about Dr. Hang Nguyen, who comes to an archipelago that has been seized by a multinational uh, corporation uh, and evacuated of its inhabitants. And she comes there to investigate a uh, an octopus that has risen supposedly to a symbolic level of communication. I, I'm avoiding using the word sentient because octopuses are sentient and you know, animals are sentient in, in general, and I think it's a misnomer, although it keeps cropping up in reviews of the book that it's that the, it's a book about sentient octopuses, in which case it would be science uh, and, and not science fiction. That is the kind of core of the book is her study uh, against a backdrop of global politics. And then there are two other subplots woven in uh, to this book. 
Uh, one is of a, a young man who had wanted to work for the same corporation who finds himself enslaved on an AI uh, ship that is uh, fishing in the world's increasingly protein poor, let's say, oceans. And then the third one uh, is a, a Tatar hacker in Russia in the city of Astrakhan who gets hired to break into a mind that is much more complex than he has uh, seen before. So those are the sort of three storylines. And where did the idea come from? You know, it's it's one of those questions like, these ideas sit in the back of your mind for years and years, and you're never sure like what's the spark that tips you over toward writing them. I knew that I was definitely going to write about the Condal Archipelago, which is uh, where I had actually worked for some time when I was in uh, in Vietnam, stationed in Ho Chi Minh City as the Environment Science Technology and Health Officer at the at the U.S. Embassy. I think there was that. There was my very long standing. Um, obsession maybe not obsession uh you know interest in in the octopus as uh as just a fundamentally different but also um somehow recognizable creature you know uh, a creature that has a structure totally different from ours but in whom we recognize curiosity which is what i think we find often most human in ourselves as it's pointed out in, uh, I think it was Peter Godfrey Smith's book, Other Minds, which was a big inspiration for this book. Octopuses are some of the only animals that are named in an aquarium. Usually there's uh, maybe a dolphin and, you know, a seal maybe at the outside and a couple of penguins might get names. And then the octopus usually gets uh, a name as well. And I think that shows just how interested we really are in them. So there were sort of those threads and then my investigations into biosemiotics, which is a kind of emerging field connected both to the study of signs and then the study of life as a set of exchanges of information rather than uh, simply a material existence. Yeah. So you mentioned the word biosemiotics. I've never heard that <laughs> word before. What is that? So uh, biosemiotics um, is... It's a field that, that emerged about, let's, I think, about 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, Douglas Hofstetter is one of the um, scientists behind it. He was a biologist. And basically, the proposition of biosemiotics is that uh, life, while it is has a material strata in which it exists, is fundamentally uh, an exchange of information from DNA to uh, RNA, to how we experience the world around us and the umwelt, right? Uh, the, uh, the sensory apparatus that we have um, to take in the world and the decisions we make, life fundamentally is information exchange. And this information exchange can be read as a kind of language play that occurs at every level in life, from cellular exchanges of information all the way up to human culture. And so biosemiotics seeks to combine biology with the study of semiotics and the study of science. Well, we're fortunate to have somebody on the science side of this whole issue of uh, octopus intelligence and uh, and perhaps communication and, and uh, even the astrobiology angle here, Dominic Civitelli from the University of Washington. And it's interesting, octopus intelligence is getting a lot more attention lately, thanks not only to Ray's novel, but also because of documentaries like My Octopus Teacher and advances in the real-life study of cephalopods. 
So I'd love to hear how you got involved in studying octopus intelligence and, and let us know what types of subjects are most intriguing to you. That, um, that story goes back to about um, 2013 when I was visiting Friday Harbor Labs, which is the University of Washington's marine labs up in, up in the San Juan Islands. And uh, at the time, I was really interested in, in really two, two sort of separate but kind of parallel fields, which was um, uh, the origins of life and then the origins of the mind. So sort of like how the chemical becomes biological on the one hand, then also how the biological becomes like psychological. And uh, these were, were really separate interests uh, at the time. And I was there studying marine invertebrate zoology. And I really was doing that because in psychology, the primary model of behavior and intelligence is, is vertebrates, overwhelmingly so, right? Humans, primates, um, rodents, um, birds, fish sometimes. Uh, and so it was a it was an opportunity for me to just explore the other ninety five percent of of animal life, right? Which is which is the invertebrates, and um, uh, among those animals, many of which are you know five hundred million years separate from us, or had evolved five hundred million years separately from us, there was the octopus, and 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 just when it comes to sheer just morphological and behavioral complexity, the octopus just stood out among all the others. And, and so it really struck me, especially knowing that our common ancestor or rather speculating that our common ancestor was a very simple worm. A lot of that morpho uh, morphological complexity, a lot of that behavioral complexity evolved uh, completely separately. Uh, so that was really exciting. And, and, and kind of uh, these two interests kind of became one in a way where like, I suddenly had this model for what intelligence might look like had it had like a completely different evolutionary origin in fact like possibly on like another on another world um in another solar system and so they they became a bit of a model to me for uh what extraterrestrial intelligence might end up looking like well it's time for a little reality check how intelligent can octopuses actually get dominic uh, is it possible to put cephalopods on a scale with uh, dolphins mm -hmm. and apes the vertebrates that you mentioned yeah, very good question, and um, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate uh, Ray when you when you talked about the levels of of information processing in biology. It is also, you know, a similar explanation is probably how I'd answer this question in terms of there's different that there's intelligence on every scale of biology is is really how I'd answer that right. There's and while while our intelligence is very you know it's very abstract, very centralized, very social. You also have something like, um, I like to point to the mantis shrimp, for instance, whose eyeballs have like 16, 15 or 16 photoreceptors. We don't have that, right? Uh, and so in a way, there, there's a sort of computational complexity happening within their retinas that that we can't possibly even wrap our heads around. Spider webs as well, I think, are a good example where, um, you know, spiders are using spider webs as like this giant vibrational organ. Uh, like a whole huge external sensory organ that that they can then pick up pick up signals from to be able to identify where prey is, and so it's really it's hard to place octopuses. Um, it really is because they're just so different to compare them side by side with humans or or other vertebrates uh, would be um, inappropriate in a lot of ways because um, they're they evolved with a completely different morphological shape and with a completely different like environment um so 
they i think a lot of these different forms of intelligence whether it's like you know a spider's web or 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 you know these complex retinas of, of the arthropods or whatever i think they should kind of be assessed on their own terms but there are as, as ray you mentioned that there's a lot of these kind of convergent behaviors which i think is really interesting like the octopus is curious despite its uh distance on the evolutionary tree um from vertebrates we they still have nonetheless converged on things like curiosity which which are very closely related to intelligence among vertebrates so it's so it, it's cool to see that that despite these these morphological and behavioral differences we have this this commonality um so this book the mountain and the sea it really has the interaction of three different types of intelligence the human intelligence the artificial intelligence and also the octopus intelligence Ray, and then Dominic, I'm hoping you could answer this question. What are going to be some of the difficulties of communicating across these different types of intelligences? Well, I think that, you know, Dominic sort of was hinting at this um, in his previous answer, and uh, I would I would take it a step further. I think one of the problems with the measurement of intelligence is that we're continuously trying to measure intelligence by how like us an animal is, Right. And the more like us the animal is, the more intelligent we find it. So, for example, if the octopus is curious, well, it's a sign of intelligence, right? Because we are curious. So everything becomes very self uh, sort of re reflexive. Um, and Douglas Hofstadter actually suggests a different definition of intelligence, which I think is a little bit less species specific and a little bit more all encompassing. He suggests uh, semiotic freedom as a measurement of intelligence. What this is, is Basically, given an input, right, into a system, what are the number of possible different outputs that the system can come up with to solve the problem presented by that input, right? So he thinks this is a better measurement of intelligence. Essentially, it's a measurement of choice. If the octopus is presented with a problem, how many possible solutions can it come up with to a problem, right? And you can go very simply, let's say a good example would be a tick. A tick certainly has a mind, right? There's something there making some decisions, sensing the world and doing things. But a tick is really only interested in one thing. It's interested in the presence or absence of butylic acid in its environment. If it's present, then it drops down to its perch and seeks to latch on to the, the place where it sensed it, right? And that, that, turn, that engage, engages it in its whole feeding activity. It can't sense butylic acid and then make one of several different decisions. It really can only do one thing. At the same time, you have animals like ants, right? That can make many decisions given an input. And actually, and even though, you know, their, their minds are, are quite small and they're very, very different from us, we've shown that ants, for example, are one of the few animals in the animal kingdom that can that recognize themselves in a mirror, which is bizarre, right? Given what we think about their capacities. Um, you know, them and elephants, apes, right? A few other animals. So it's more about, I think, the question we should be asking ourselves is, you know, one of the, it was a title of a book, actually, are we smart enough to understand how smart animals are, right? Is a good question. But also, are we using the correct measurement? Are we using a measurement that actually allows us to um, understand what intelligence is? I mean, Quite frankly, I don't think that we that the that human beings understand very well how we are intelligent and how our own bodies work and how we make decisions and things like that, much less 
an octopus, an ant, or anything else. And I think this goes for AI as well. I think we recognize AI as being intelligent when it makes human-like decisions, fundamentally the same problem. All we're doing is measuring its likeness. And that's something that I play with in the book too. We have this Turing test turned on itself, right? Where he says, well, the Turing test really is, the final Turing test is, can you fool yourself into thinking that you're real, right? (laughs) And if you can do that, then you're conscious, right? And if you can't, then you're not, right? Um, it kind of turns the idea on its head because the original Turing test is, is, is exactly what I'm talking about. The idea that an AI proves its intelligence by fooling a human being into thinking it's human just doesn't make any sense. That, that doesn't prove anything except that a human being is incapable of, either capable or incapable of distinguishing between something that is human and not human at some certain level. First of all, I, I just wanted to to uh, add on um, to to raise response about like not really understanding. Uh, I think it's interesting that in the fossil record, uh, looking at like early hominids, we, we have this seemingly uh, exponential growth of the brain between like about two million years ago and and, and now, uh, which is really interesting because we don't really know. We can speculate what happened, but we don't really know what happened and it seemingly was like really decisive in like how our brains formed, but um, was, you know, it seemingly slowed down because at one point we, you know, we had to be born and our our brains could only get so big. So it's interesting that, you know, even though we're, we're so far removed seemingly from our, from our uh, environment in which we had evolved, there is this interesting uh, fossil record that's, that's suggesting there was some kind of, acceleration of our intelligence and and why uh i guess that's probably a question for a different uh podcast session but um but yeah it's interesting because like yeah how, how do we know right with other animals we can kind of see the environment that is selecting for their morphology we can kind of see the 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 environment that's selecting for their behavior but with humans it's very we're very far removed uh and on the on the topic of communication yeah that's that's uh a such an interesting question like there we have we're gonna have um we have so many different varieties of of cognition um and how do how do we communicate and like how will we communicate for instance with like with a completely different intelligence from a completely different planet fundamentally our communication our ability to communicate is going to be um based not only on our what the environment is is demanding of us but also just on what we're physically capable of right like our 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 minds are really connecting sensory input to adaptive motor output and and if there's no sensory field for the information we're not going to be able to comprehend that information if we're we can we might be able to wave at an octopus but if they have no if they have no perception of like the wave we might try to be communicating with them but they're probably not going to be processing that right octopuses probably aren't hearing things right we don't we don't know if if they they are necessarily picking up higher frequency uh vibrations in the water that that you know mammals would would be easily picking up for instance and and so it it becomes kind of an interesting problem um not only in terms of like what could we possibly communicate but how could we possibly communicate like what what are even the the kinds of information that we should be sending um, to these to these you know cephalopods, for instance, for them to under, for them to gather any information at all, um, they are uh, they are in 
a level of water where certain wavelengths won't won't reach. There are predators of theirs that have uh, certain combinations of photopigments that we probably aren't even taking into account. And this, but the cephalopod necessarily has to because they have to survive, right? And so, so there's all these levels of of yeah, as Ray mentioned, like all these uh, levels of information exchange that um, that we will are barely scratching the surface of. Um, which is why I think that um, technology, um, especially AI, like in this story, is will be such an important factor in this, and that like we can through technology um, start to not only see, uh, interpret, um, and sense the, these levels of, of information, but also to understand it and and to make sense of it using something like you know AI and, and neural networks. So, um, so yeah, I know it's it's a very it's the this uh, this field of biological and artificial communication is is new but it's i mean it's it's fun and it's really exciting to see where where it might head and in the book uh ray uh you have put together a communication system that's based on the way that uh, an octopus can change its colors and change its displays and actually produce patterns. It really reminded me of the movie Arrival, which is based on a Ted Chang novel, uh, trying to figure out how those different modes of communication can be picked up on and, and used, and they do some guessing about what these different symbols mean. How did you latch on to that idea? Is that something that came to you from people who were talking to you about the science or is that something that just came from the science fiction imagination? I generally find, and I won't, I won't sort of point any, any particular films or, or books out that there's, that there's a lot of hand waving done when it comes to communicating with other species in, in science fiction. Um, and, and science fiction is an interesting field, right? Because a lot of our hard science fiction tends to be hard in the sense of physics and, and not entirely hard in the sense of biology. So I wanted to write a, a hard science fiction novel and set before myself the challenge of, you know, if a species like the octopus was going to communicate, what would it use? And, and you're right in saying that, that uh, it uses its skin, but it doesn't quite use its camouflage mechanism. It really is using uh, something called the passing cloud, right? And this is a behavior in the octopus that it uses, in fact, it's not a fully understood behavior uh, by scientists, but it appears to use it to startle prey into moving so that prey that's concealed will, will be distracted, startled, move, and then the octopus can attack it. The passing cloud is like this shadow that passes across the octopus's skin very quickly sometimes or slowly, and it can be very intricate. What I was looking for was something that could be exapted. So exaption, of course, is, is how we have the ability to speak. We used our eating and breathing apparatus to do something else, to make noise by pushing the air back up through our, our lungs and do something that this was not an apparatus that was designed to do. So eventually, of course, the, the apparatus itself probably improved as people who became who were more eloquent speakers, who could you know make better, better sounds, became more dominant, et cetera, all those things. But originally, this was an exaption, you know, using something that isn't for that process in order to do something. So I was thinking of what would an what is the say the thing in an octopus's physical arsenal that is least likely uh, to interfere with the rest of its activities? And the octopus really can't get get by without camouflage, and it can't get by without many many other things. But it can probably use the passing cloud uh, as to do something else when it's not using it to, to hunt. So that was the idea. What I was looking for was a convincing 
method of communication for this particular animal. And I just felt that that was something, well, I mean, usually in science fiction, if you have an alien, then you're working from scratch, you can do whatever you want, such as in Arrival, they can do whatever they want, because they, you know, are working with a creature that just doesn't exist. I wanted to stay within the bounds of, of sort of hard, let's say, biology, and try to figure something out that would be convincing to me as a reader. And so that's what I came up with. As far as the symbols, then you have another problem, right? It's not just about about seeing and being able to read the symbols on the animal's skin, but it's also what is the grounding of their communication? How do they think about the world? What, you know, what would they base their symbols on? And so that's what the book, uh, a lot of the book is trying to figure out is even if you can see the symbols, even if you can see the patterns, how do you figure out what they mean? Right. Yeah, I, I loved those symbols. The symbols are, of course, integrated into the cover of the book and then they come up in the text of the book itself, how did you decide on those particular symbols? Uh, yeah, I um so so a funny story. So I made all of those symbols with like Microsoft Word, like this simple vector, you know, uh, shapes. And I, I kind of just made them up. I came up with this idea. I don't want to sort of blow it for people, um, you know, but I came up with an idea of what an octopus might base its character system on or partially base it on. And then I kind of worked from there. But I thought that when they published the book, they would hire like an artist or something to like change these and and make and make them into something different. But instead, they just used what I came up with. And so what's in the book is actually, you know, what I created originally. That was that was not actually that was not the intent, but I guess they liked the way they they looked enough to, to use them. So I was just looking for something that would be alien enough to us and our systems that we people wouldn't immediately think, oh, I know what that probably means, but also ultimately reconcilable with an octopus's reality. So that if you knew enough about an octopus's life, you might be able to figure out what the grounding of that symbol was. Because most symbols, as you probably know, are not, are not completely without some grounding in reality. Chinese characters are a good example. While many Chinese characters are totally abstract, the original you know, set of Chinese characters probably had some pictorial relationship to the world. And, and you see this in the, you know, in the character for person, right? Uh, house, things like that. And so that's that's sort of the the key in, a, in the in the book's understanding it has a similar sort of basis that these characters probably have some connection to an octopus's real life and aren't just made from nothing. There's more about the symbols that will be revealed in the latter part of the book. So that's why we're speaking very carefully. But I thought that was a really uh, nice twist. And it also got me thinking about like what like a television or movie adaptation of this book uh, might be like. Is there anything like that in the works? So my my agent, who is amazing, um, he also works with some film and television agents. And all I can say is we'll see. This is a really this is a really complicated thing, right? My my agent I think explained it very well. He said if you sell something to the industry then you get some extra money and that's great. Nothing ever gets made. And if it gets made, it will probably be probably be made badly and you should not watch it because you'll hate it. So, you know, he likes to lower expectations as low as they can possibly get and then, you know, anything above that is just uh, a bonus. 
<laughs> that's a good reality check for the way that Hollywood works, that's for sure. Uh, and in terms of the reality for uh, octopus intelligence and the potential applications, uh, I wonder if you or Dominic have any ideas about potential spinoffs that could come from a clearer understanding of an octopus mind's inner workings. For example, could they come in the form of smarter autonomous robots or better AI? Because in the book, as you note, the arms of an octopus have some autonomy from the, the brain. Uh, or would we be able to recruit octopuses to do work underwater in the same way that the U.S. military uses marine mammals to do mine detection or equipment recovery? Or will the insights that come from uh, research into octopuses have totally different kinds of applications. I love that question because whenever I meet a passionate scientist, I always like to ask something along the lines of like, what's the most like science fiction application you can imagine for your research, which I don't think they get enough of. <laughs> well, there's, you know, Dr. Octopus and the whole. Oh yeah. Doc Ock. Distributed. Yeah. That thing. Um, which, I mean, if you really look at it on like the movies that they're actually, they act more like serpents. Um, actually, so does the Kraken on the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but I mean, that, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say that like robotics is, is a super, is a super relevant uh, area. And that's, that's primarily because soft robotics, robots without really many hard parts at all, they're more like flesh and they're, they're compliant and they're, and they're flexible and um, and there's a lot of benefits that come out of that, but also like a lot of challenges that come out of that. So some of the benefits are like really you we we deal with on a day to day basis as as we're like grabbing something, our our tissue is actually soft, and so in some ways it actually conforms around the shape of that object, which makes our our ability to like manipulate our environment like really um adaptive right because like we don't actually have to think about a lot of the the ways that our hand is forming around an object um our flesh is doing a lot of the, the work for us so our brain doesn't actually have to have to compute a lot of that so with soft robotics say like a soft robotic uh, manipulator you can conform around any shape make a bit of like what they would call universal gripper and that's super nice because now the the robot doesn't have to essentially process exactly what the shape of the object is. The flip side of this is how do you even control something with infinite degrees of freedom, right? How do you control like a soft, like the octopus does, like this soft limb that can bend in any direction, anywhere down its length. And um, so that's in, in regard to like robotics, but just in distributed computing, like things like edge computing, I think it's really interesting looking at how the sort of peripheral nervous system of the octopus is communicating to, to generate such adaptive behavior. Yeah, I would add that in the book, we they do go into this at, at one point and kind of and suggest that there is another kind of drone technology out there in which, unlike the drones that are strictly controlled by an operator the drones just explore the world by themselves and the operator sort of passively sits back and then takes control when they think they need to you know in order to redirect or like nudge it and i think that's one one way of thinking about it but i think also i just i just recently wrote an an essay on this um called how is a skateboarder like an octopus um and I think one of the one of the things that we are not good at 
is actually seeing how like animals uh, we are. Um, what the essay talks about is, is the way in which we think about consciousness and the way in, in which we also, especially someone like an athlete, I was a skateboarder for years. It's pretty much all I did after school for hours and hours until it was too dark to ride a skateboard anymore. You know, from when I was about 12 until when I was almost 18. And I remember one day when my house was kind of at the top of a hill that sloped for a couple miles pretty gently to a parking lot where I used to meet my friends to go skateboarding. And as I, as I, you know, rolled down the hill, I would usually try to do some tricks and, you know, you fall, you pick yourself up. You're used to falling as a skateboarder. It's like just part of the game. Um, and I remember one time that I probably starting at my house and getting to that place did a hundred different tricks. Some of them that I hadn't landed before and I hit everything and it was perfect. Everything was perfect. Every single, you know, ollie I did, every half cab, every kickflip, every, you know, slide, I just everything worked. And when I got to the parking lot, I kind of looked back up the hill and was like, all right, it doesn't get any better than this, right? What struck me, what strikes me looking back at that experience is that there's this way in which the body uh, is in control and not the brain. And I think that we understand very well if we can connect to those moments in which we are, ourselves are sort of these drifting physical forms that are not completely conscious of what's going on with our limbs, um, we probably understand quite well something of what it feels like to be an octopus. For ex a really good example that other that other people besides skateboarders for could relate to would be suddenly waking up behind the wheel of your car, having not been aware of driving for the last 10 or 15 minutes sometimes just having made turns and done things with your body that your mind was clearly not paying any conscious attention to but certainly you were always in control and i think maybe that's another sort of window into what it might be like to be an octopus i think it you know if we look at our own cognition what we come to understand is that we don't understand very much about cognition, about how you learn to do something with your body, about how you do something well and then badly, even though you've already learned it and why suddenly you can do it well again, right? I mean, athletes talk about being in the zone and they use all these sort of uh, words that nobody likes to listen to in sports interviews. But I think it's because our language is really poorly designed to talk about anything but control and, and, and active sort of action. And the rest of it sounds just very sort of vague. But that vagueness is something all of us go through every day. You know, just spacing out and doing things with our hands, washing dishes, whatever, and then coming back to it and being like, whoa, where was I? I think this is a lot like what an octopus is doing on the seafloor. This is how I imagine them. I imagine them kind of drifting around. Their arms are doing stuff. They're kind of moving over the environment. Their brain is keeping an eye out in some ways for predators, et cetera. And then the, the arm like reaches into a hole and gets nipped by something. And the octopus brain kind of goes, wait, like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, what's in there? Where, where am I? Like, you know, and pulls the arm out, right? Something like that. And Dominic, that's something that's the focus of your research, right? Uh, the autonomy of octopus arms. Does that sound about how you imagine octopuses work? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> uh, so I, um, 
so I will, I'll, I'll cite, I'll cite uh, Martin Wells actually, who is one of the pioneers in the field. And he, he gave a really good explanation that, that I'll try to uh, modernize a little bit. Um, and at the time he, he wrote that uh, there is, he really just, he, he talked about technology. And at the time he was talking about, about, about a car and how there's, there's all of this computation and all these calculations that are occurring below the hood of the car. And we're only very remotely aware of what's happening with the engine and so on just through this limited interface, which is how we kind of illustrated what the brain might be going through in the octopus. Right. And, and I think that like, there's a lot of an, uh, analogies of this in our day-to-day life where we have you know, these computers now, cars are becoming more intelligent, phones are becoming more intelligent, uh, our watches are intelligent now. And, and, and so as, as our day-to-day technology becomes more intelligent, all, you have all these computations and calculations and algorithms that are occurring, but through this very, through this very limited interface, like we'll never truly uh, wrap our head around the, the, the sheer amount of, of 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 information complexity that's happening but we we have enough to be able to interact with them and use them you know adaptively like in our day-to-day life i think uh another example might be like someone who's playing a a video game and they have like a controller and there's like a character in this environment in this digital environment and you might you might have you know press a to jump or b to interact with things it's I would say it's very similar to that, but there is an element of this character is aware of information that you'll never be aware of, right? So you might have the character jump, like the Optimus might have its arm reach, for instance, but the character is going to do something additional to that. It's, it's going to adapt the jump or modify the jump because of some information in the game, in the in the digital environment, but you'll never actually, you'll never know <laughs> what that is what that was that made them do that extra bit of motion or that, that extra bit of, uh, of adaptation. And I think that's very much what the octopus is going through. What well, well, they'll have, they have this very limited interface. They might be able to choose to reach or be able to choose to fetch or something like that. Um, their, arm, their arms are always going to be doing something extra that the brain will never truly uh, be aware of. I mean, one of the reasons being that there's just like tons of information in the peripheral nervous system that the brain can possibly comprehend. But there's also very, what's interesting is that there's a very limited bandwidth between the, the brain and the, and the arms, right? You have like hundreds of millions of, of neurons in the brain, hundreds of millions of neurons in the arms, but they're, but they're really only communicating over a bandwidth of like a few hundred thousand neurons. So it's kind of like an hourglass shape. So it's, it's kind of cool to think about like how there's these centers or periphery of, of uh, computation, but like what's actually being communicated between those areas is, is very limited. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible model. And, and I definitely love to speculate how they're possibly seeing or <laughs> perceiving the world. I definitely have this tendency to think that my brain is in charge. <laughs> it's the cultural bias. Um, reading this book, it definitely, I detected like the cyberpunk influence. It kind of reminded me of uh, William Gibson, but with more kind of like the intersection with like animal cognition, conservation biology. It got a very generous blurb from Jeff Vandermeer. And I, uh, yeah, I think Jeff Vandermeer fans will really like the the reverence for nature and the natural world that this book has. And I'm curious, uh, Ray, uh, who are some authors that you admire or that influenced you? Yeah, this, this is a, this is always kind of a tough question uh, for me. So I, um, I was talking just last night with with someone about this and saying that maybe one of the things that makes me different as a science 
fiction or a speculative fiction author is that I am a reader of speculative fiction, but I'm not a fan of it in the sense that like, it's not important to me that a book be in a certain genre. What's important to me is that the book communicates something that is startling and new. So I'm kind of the opposite of the, of the, the type of reader who seeks to go back to that same thing that they experienced over and over again, which I think is sometimes a little bit one of the one of the core elements of fandom, right? It is like it is the return to the thing, right? And wanting to see more of that same thing, which is not a negative thing and not a judgment. I am the kind of person who, after having put a book down, wants to then go and read something that's completely unlike that and get something new out of it. And because of this, I feel like I am constantly pulling all of these threads. The spiderweb analogy is an, is a nice one, and sort of feeling where the vibrations are coming from. Like I really, I really like Gibson, and I and I've read two or three of his books, but actually, I would say the novel's more influenced by um, Patricia Highsmith than anyone else, even though she's not a writer of speculative fiction. But I think that for me, she just has this amazing ability to compress all of this psychological power into a sentence that I really love. You know, and I read a lot of. I read a lot of noir and crime fiction just because I love the drive of it and the way it pulls you into this universe and holds you there. And that, yeah, I understand the references to to Gibson, but I can't say that he's like I love his I love his his work and I really love his, his writing on the sentence level, especially. But I can't say that he's probably a huge influence on me as a writer. And you know, I'd say something that all of the reviewers have missed so far is how much Shakespeare is in this book. What I love about Shakespeare is the way in which when a character gets on stage to do a monologue, what you are watching is the unfolding of the self, not to you, but to itself. So instead of a monologue that you used to get, even in Elizabethan theater of like, I am going to do this thing, and he does not know that I will do this thing, right? Instead, you go, you get with Shakespeare, is the first time you get this, why am I going to do this? Perhaps it's for this reason. No, that couldn't possibly be. Instead, I think I should do this, but that has a problem too, right? So you, you get this dialogue that's constantly going on in our own minds. That's kind of how I I look at the at the book as this unfolding of these multiple dialogues with different selves about what it means to be a self. And at the center of that is the octopus, because that's what everyone, the, the book kind of converges on. But for me, what's really important as a writer is the conversations that Ha is having with response about responsibility, right? Um, and of course, the struggle that Rustem is going through, the hacker, right, over how to extract himself from a difficult situation, and then maybe also, you know, how to be mo- a moral person. That kind of drifts a little bit away from the question, but I would say my favorite authors shift all the time, but I grew up on Shakespeare. Uh, my mother brought me to those plays, taught them to me before we went and saw them, had like a whole system for, for getting me involved and making me feel comfortable in his world. And above all, that's been the most powerful influence on, on my writing. Wow. As an English major, I'm getting chills with the mention of Shakespeare and the, the reference to to be or not to be, which is actually, should I do this or shouldn't I? And here's right. why I should and here's why I shouldn't. I don't know. 
Um, right. Uh, for Dominic, I wanted to kind of flip the question back to uh, science fiction depictions of animal intelligence, whether you have any favorites or not so favorites, things that are well done or maybe not that well done. Yeah. So I would say that, that my, um, that my favorite interpretations of alien intelligence, just to kind of specify the specify the category a little bit, would be H.P. Lovecraft, and I think a lot of that comes from uh, identifying that there is going to be an element of just sheer terror in regard to there is there are these like massive living probably inter- interdimensional creatures as he puts it or or. Uh, life forms that are completely beyond comprehension, but um, there is a lot of emphasis put on innovation and curiosity and on science, really. And and that's kind of in a few of his works without, without giving it away. Uh, that's really where we find like kinship with, with these sort of like crazy looking, completely alien creatures. And so I guess that's, that's probably one of my favorites because that's something that I've come to really feel with, with something like the octopus where it's like, they look so weird. They're, they move weird. They, their skin's weird. Um, their behavior is weird. Right. But despite that, there's this shared mutual curiosity. Right. And so I'd say that's my favorite simply because that's something that I feel like we've almost paralleled Lovecraft in his fictional works and like me and in, in, in my research. Um, and then like, like these works like Ray and, and Craig Foster with uh, my octopus teacher. And, and so I just think that that's looking back. Um, that's probably my favorite uh, uh, fictional manifestation of that. Thank you, Ray. We gave you the first word and I think uh, we'll give you the last word as well. Uh, whether there is anything that you expect the reader to take away from this book other than reading a good story. You've talked about so many issues, the future of conservation, the future of AI, the future of research into aliens, including the aliens on our own planet. What do you want the reader to take away from this book? So fiction, in my opinion, should not be didactic. It shouldn't seek to dictate what a reader thinks. I think that there's a place for that in writing, and, and that place is usually in, in nonfiction. Um, there's very, very little didactic and yet successful fiction for me as a reader. And since I think of myself as a reader, when I think of you know writing and what I'm trying to produce, I try to stay away from that. What I would like is for the book to have created for the reader a, an architecture, a sort of world in which it asks increasingly complex questions about what it means to be conscious, uh, how you communicate with, with other animals, how you communicate with other people, how alike or not alike those things are, what your responsibility is in the world, etc. I think that there are hints given in you know the conclusions that the characters come to about those questions that that are representative of things that I think might be right or wrong. But what I really want the reader to come away with is two things. I really always want the reader to have a good time. I I really want reading to be absorbing and I want it to generate excitement and a sense of, of wonder at the world's possibilities, at its complexity, et cetera, and also a way to kind of lose oneself. 
in the process of reading. So I hope that they come away from the book having felt that they went to another place and that that place was fascinating and uh, absorbing and all of those things. And then I hope that it leaves them with some questions about the world and their place in it that they can ponder at their leisure afterward. Um, I kind of wrote the book in two ways. I wrote it to have a very driving sort of forceful motion forward from beginning to end so that it would be difficult for people to put down. And then I also wrote it in a way that I, I hope invites people coming back to favorite passages, sections, or quotes and rereading them in, at a slower pace if they choose to do so. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would like to like them to get is just a, maybe a better architecture for asking more complicated questions about that. Who am I and why am I here? You know, fundamental existential uh, problem. Well, we certainly enjoyed getting lost in your world and finding our way through all those deep, deep questions that you pose in the book. And so I want to thank you, Ray, and also Dominic, for providing us the science as well as the fiction behind The Mountain and the Sea. And good luck with the book and good luck with your research, Dominic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you all. Thanks to Ray Naylor and Dominic Civitilli for a thought-provoking chat. For more about Ray and the mountain in the sea, as well as about Dominic and his octopus research, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. You can follow the links to books and movies that were mentioned on the show, plus further background on subjects ranging from octopus behavior to biosemiotics and exaptation. And you won't want to miss watching Dominic's TED Talk about his explorations of the octopus mind. While you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to James Emily for his rendition of the fiction science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.